You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to talk to Scott Gillespie, editorial page editor and vice president of the Minneapolis Star Tribune and a UW-Madison Journalism School and political science alum. Scott was lead editor on Separate and Unequal, the series of editorials on underfunded Bureau of Indian Education Schools that was a finalist for the 2015 Pulitzer Prize and not this mine, not this location, on proposed mining in the Boundary Waters, which was a 2020 Pulitzer finalist for editorial writing. Scott has more than 30 years of news reporting and editing experience at newspapers in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Minneapolis, of course, was at the epicenter of a renewed and revitalized civil rights movement in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. We wanted to talk to Scott about his career in media in Minneapolis and Wisconsin, and a summer of protests in the midst of a global pandemic when Minnesota and Wisconsin are hotly contested Midwest states in the upcoming presidential election. First things first, thank you so much for joining us today on 1050 Bascom. Thanks, Adam. Really happy to be here. Do you want to, first of all, give us some background on yourself, uh, your role at the Star Tribune, and kind of your uh, professional narrative so far? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. I'm the son of a newspaper man and became interested in newspapers as a high school student. Uh, my father was a news editor at the late great Milwaukee Sentinel. And as a teenager, I started to go down to the Sentinel newsroom and hang out as much as I could. Really enjoyed it, loved the atmosphere, loved the people and the how interesting and how uh, different the job was every day, depending on the flow of news. And so uh, when I enrolled at UW, uh, journalism was my plan. I uh, double majored in political science, was drawn to the political science department because of how good it was and still is. And uh, really glad that I had both those uh, uh, areas of study at UW because I think they both really helped prepare me for my career. Um, thanks to uh, some assistance from nepotism, I guess, I did do uh, three internships at the Sentinel during, a, uh, during summers while I was going to Madison. And uh, at least the first one was nepotism. Maybe if I would have screwed that up, they wouldn't have given me the other two, I don't know. But fortunate enough to, to get that kind of real world experience uh, those three summers and worked with a lot of great editors. And it was a newspaper without a really large staff. So it uh, was really busy. And if you could chew gum and walk at the same time, they would throw you at stories that maybe you wouldn't get to do if you were at a larger newspaper with a bigger staff. So it was a great experience. I uh, graduated in 1982. And uh, uh, that was a bit of a newspaper recession period. And uh, I got a part-time job at the Sentinel, which I guess knew me, and I don't know, again, how much nepotism played a, a role, but I uh, uh, like to think that maybe uh, they had worked with me enough over those three summers where they, they felt good about that uh, offer. Uh, turned out into a 
pretty quickly into a full-time job as a reporter. And I worked there um, until uh, the kind of late 80s when I actually went to work for the Milwaukee Business Journal. I decided that it was time to kind of go out and find a path that was different than the one my uh, father was on. My dad had passed away at that point, so I went to work for the Business Journal, which had hired a, some Milwaukee Sentinel uh, staffers as they started up. And so I, I uh, really kind of fell in love with business journalism and did that for a couple of years there as a reporter and editor, and then uh, got hired in 1989 to run a weekly business journal in Minneapolis, moved up to, to the Twin Cities at that point. I did that for a couple of years and then was hired by the Star Tribune as an assistant business editor, became the assistant managing editor for business news, then the assistant managing editor for local news, then the managing editor for five years, and then um, about 12 years ago, moved into editorial, which runs separately from news at the Star Tribune. So now I'm in opinion journalism. And uh, I think after 12 years, I'm starting to get the hang of it, but it was a really interesting, difficult transition at first. Before we get into like the really hot topics that we're going to talk about, uh, mm -hmm. I'm really interested to hear about like what your day-to-day -day looks like in the editorial uh, role that you fill. We have a pretty small team of 10 people. So we all do a little bit of everything. Uh, a lot of, you know, we all pitch in and uh, we, we have pretty big ambitions for as small a staff as we have. So we still write a daily institutional editorial, sometimes two. And um, in addition to that, we, um, we're, we often meet with people from outside the company and, and you know, public figures, politicians, uh, nonprofit leaders, business leaders, regular citizens who have something they want to talk to us about. So we spend a lot of time, especially pre-pandemic, we spend, uh, just being the place that people could come in and, 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 and talk with the Star Tribune. Um, we generally do a, a one large project a year and uh, fortunately have had the couple of them uh, were particularly powerful and did very well and were Pulitzer finalists, uh, one in 15 and one this past, uh, just this past in, uh, uh, 2020 actually for work in 18. And um, we, um, you know, a day, a typical day is most mornings we, we meet right now, we meet via Microsoft Teams and uh, haven't been in the office since March, but we uh, I'll talk about the topics of the day. Each of my writers, the full-time writers have expertise in different areas, uh, healthcare, government, politics, state government, um, uh, education, uh, city issues, urban issues. Um, so they bring their ideas to the table. Uh, others on our team bring ideas to the table and then we decide what we're going to write. And, and our commentary, other, other, you know, often known as op-eds that sort of flows from that, this, those discussions too. So we have a couple of commentary editors who are constantly going through, through um, what is submitted to us in commentary by readers uh, and, and experts, as well as all the syndicated material that we can get from uh, columnists and, and other kinds of syndicated op-eds uh, from the, the wire services that we use. So we're looking, we, we see our mission as hosting the debate and on the issues that matter to our readers. 
Going right off that, the Star Tribune obviously covers a lot for Minneapolis. It's the home paper for it. And Minneapolis has been so, has been in the spotlight ever since uh, the end of May. Can you just share what uh, maybe the newsroom and what your editorial room virtual room virtual rooms looked like as things started to really unfold in Minneapolis? Well, as you can imagine, we were pretty focused on the pandemic at, uh, uh, at that point. And, uh, but um, when the video surfaced of George Floyd's arrest and death, it really, you know, was apparent from that minute on that we had a, a big story on our hands. And uh, my colleagues in the newsroom, uh, jumped on it, I think, you know, quite aggressively uh, looking at what had led to uh, Mr. Floyd's arrest, as well as, you know, circumstances around his death. And then, of course, uh, protests started. Uh, some of them, not all of them, uh, some of them, uh, as you, you well know, uh, became, became uh, violent. It was uh, a dangerous time, both for the reporters and photographers who were out on the streets, but but also any citizens who were out in the streets at that time, both in Minneapolis and St. Paul, although St. Paul was just really a couple of nights and then things calmed down. Uh, really the, you know, the peak for the civil unrest was the night that the third precinct was uh, burned down, a police precinct. And, um, our goal in opinion during that period was to try to give perspective on what was happening to comment on the decisions that leaders were making uh, both the mayors of St. Paul and Minneapolis, also Governor Walls, and uh, law enforcement officials in the state. So we stayed in pretty frequent contact with them, had pretty open phone lines with them, um, and uh, and you know we were sometimes supportive of the steps they were taking. We were sometimes critical of steps they didn't take, uh, uh, but but tried to keep keep going in that direction. At the same time, obviously there was this. Uh, growing discussion of policing and what should policing look like in America today? What should it look like in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and in the Twin Cities? It was not a topic that was new to us. We've written a lot about it because we've had other cases in Minneapolis, St. Paul of officer-involved uh, violence, uh, sometimes leading to death. Um, some of those cases, uh, those officers were exonerated uh, Either through the legal system or, or, or because of you know new evidence that surfaced, but in some cases, uh, you know, but that those, those memories lingered too. So um, it was a discussion that we'd had before, but never with the intensity that that we had after George George Floyd. What kind of content were you guys starting to put out then during that, um, especially? Considering, like you said, like you, the the editorial team was supportive of some measures, but um, maybe not necessarily so about others. So, like, uh, what did that really look like? Uh, can the content coming out of your room? Well, you know, during the time of the the largest protests, the ones that the ones that turned unfortunately violent, um, we you know the content look we we had pretty um, live uh, editorials and commentary. We worked seven days a week uh, for several weeks there um, to try to make sure that we were reacting to the news. And we had a, a pretty steady stream of commentary and letters to the editor from people in the community who wanted to comment on one aspect or another 
of, uh, of the issues that were playing out on the streets. And, um, you know, I think we were really fortunate in Minneapolis, St. Paul and really Minnesota as a whole, we have a very engaged audience and they have always been uh, predisposed to talk about public policy and, what, and, and what's right and, and what works and what doesn't work. So, um, you know, we were hearing from a lot of people, sometimes people who were angry, sometimes people who had ideas, uh, sometimes, uh, and sometimes um, voices of color, uh, people of color who, you know, said this is su su part of a systemic problem that we have, wake up, and they described in their own words what it was, what it's like and was like to, uh, to live here and to try to work and be a, a minority community member in a place that's still majority white. For listeners, your editorial content definitely is independent of the hard news coverage of the actual newsroom. Um, and with that probably comes a really difficult way of navigating objectivity um, or navigating um, the reporting of, you know, like kind of in air quotes, both sides, the both sides story. How how do you navigate that, especially as um, the lead of the opinion desk? Well, we um, we have pretty. I think I hope we have high standards for what we do in opinion. We do try to do reported opinion work all the time, and even though we don't have a giant team, uh, we have enough uh, staff so that we can still spend some time actually. Uh, doing reporting, not just riffing off the news, not just doing quick, you know, this is how we feel. Uh, but, but trying to actually talk to people who are involved in stories, including the George Floyd story, and, um, and then coming up with our opinion on it based on actual um, uh, reporting and, and uh, research. So we tried to rely um, heavily on that, but, you know, kind of the, the worst sort of editorials are on one hand, on the other hand, at some point in an editorial, you should have an opinion. And if you don't, it's probably shouldn't be an editorial. Uh, so, you know, um, we, we will sometimes present another side, but we'll say why we don't, why we don't agree with it. And uh, then we're very open to counterpoints from people um, who want to come come after us and, and, and maybe counter what we've said. You know, I think one thing with us, we, we also wanted to see all the evidence, let these cases play out. We, we've been through cases like this before where um, you see video evidence of something, but you see only part of the video and you don't yet maybe have the medical examiner's report or you know, certainly like in this case, things haven't gone to a jury yet. Um, and we're conscious of that. So we, um, you know, we're conscious of the language we use. We're conscious of how we describe these cases, just as our news colleagues are. Um, and frankly, that's some of the criticism that we get sometimes is that we, is that we aren't, uh, um, you know, willing to declare, declare someone guilty or innocent before something has worked its way um, the legal system. Now, in the case of George, George Floyd's death, uh, you know, that video is horrible, no matter what way you cut it. And, um, you know, I, yes, we need to see this play out and we're careful with what we say about, uh, uh, about these 
convicting these officers before we know all the see all the evidence. And uh, but um, there's no question that what happened on the street that day was was horrific, and it uh, caused kind of pain and and suffering in our uh, in our whole community, not just among people of color, but among I think the majority of folks here. So it's it's really you know, it's been a reckoning and continues to be, and there's a lot of work to be done on, on race relations, obviously, as we know, not just in Minneapolis and St. Paul, but across the country. Are there any specific examples or like letters to the editor you can point to that you guys got that maybe really struck you or really resonated with you? I think for me, uh, the commentaries that we got from uh, uh, people of color in the community who we not hadn't necessarily ever met with before or published before, um, who uh, were first-time writers, those tended to stick with me because they reflected a, a you know that pain that I talked about a minute ago uh, in very personal terms, and they told the story of what it's like to what it's like to live here in, in our community, which is a uh, thinks thinks of itself as a very progressive place, and and in many ways is, but in some ways isn't, and um, I think those pieces really uh, stuck with me. And, and there were multiple by multiple writers, and um, uh, and I always like it when we get new voices and when we get voices from communities that you know aren't necessarily represented enough in our paper or in our opinion pages, uh, I feel even better about it. And uh, the story, the story meant a lot to all of us and it continues to, but it, but it meant more to them. With your coverage, did you have like reporters and boots on the ground and masks or how did, how did your coverage uh, kind of come to be, I guess? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, as we've, I think both of us have said here uh, today, you know, I'm in charge of opinion and, and news and opinion are separate from the Star Tribune, but I've spent a lot of my career in news and, and uh, those are my colleagues. And I obviously was, was very, uh, uh, was watching very carefully as they rolled out their coverage of, of uh, the protests in particular. There were um, photographers and, and, and reporters on the ground uh, you know, all times of day and night. Uh, some of them were shot by rubber bullets, uh, sadly. Uh, and uh, a number of them had, uh, you know, the effects of uh, pepper spray or other kinds of gas that they they suffered. And then others told, you know, fairly harrowing stories about some of the treatment they got from people. Um, uh, not necessarily the, the protesters, uh, the peaceful protesters, never them, but but some people on the fringes. So, um, you know, I know that my colleagues in news really emphasized staying safe, also had to emphasize that they were doing this reporting in a pandemic uh, with a virus that was still, you know, very active in the community. So, you know, being careful, wearing masks, that, kinds of, that kind of thing um, uh, was emphasized. I know that um, there was a lot of effort given to give people breaks and make sure that the same people weren't on the story every day, every night. Um, but I know from my own editing days uh, in our newsroom that that's tough sometimes because reporters get very, you know, they get very attached emotionally themselves to these stories and, and they want to be on the streets. They want to be in the middle of it. And uh, so 
uh, but I know, I know, you know, we were, we were conscious and our editors were conscious of uh, the difficulty that that can cause for people long-term and also just people need rest to do their best work. So, um, you know, a couple of those nights, it was really a challenge because of the way the protests were moving and they were in different locations. And uh, so, you know, that took a, a team approach. And then, you know, to, to their great credit, the people in news had to, you know, they did a great, I thought a phenomenal job of covering those stories. Well, they were also trying to write the perspective pieces and the deeper looks at, at uh, what, what was going on in race relations in policing. So, um, you know, they did that and they did that despite having to operate virtually for the most part, except for people to go into the office to get supplies and uh, photographers to go in because of the you know, special nature of what they do. But, um, you know, tried to really limit how much people were gathered together in the office too, which makes, that makes it harder. But, you know, I think they did a, they did an excellent job. Then you have the competition from all these national outlets that come in and they're good at doing big picture stories. And they, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, they were doing uh, some really good work as well. And, um, you know, I, I know that we had to keep an eye on that and, uh, uh, hopefully, we were in front of them on some things, um, and and uh, I believe we were. So that's a positive. Yeah, that's something I hadn't even considered. What was it like having all these major news organizations coming into your turf, the community that you guys report on, the community that you know really well? What's the kind of dynamic there? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you can tell they use us, they, they read us. And uh, uh, some of those outlets did have some people with Minnesota connections that they sent here um, for, for this coverage, which was interesting and I think smart too. Um, the, um, you can kind of predict that they're gonna do, as I said, the bigger picture stories, um, but our editors are really trying to make sure we were doing those too. And I think, I think we did, and I can't remember necessarily one where I, that I read in the New York Times or the Washington Post where I thought, boy, we, we got beat on this. It's an interesting situation when you get that kind of competition. I remember it pretty clearly when I was managing editor and the bridge collapsed, the Interstate 35W bridge collapsed in Minneapolis. And um, we were trying to get a woman at a, at a condominium who was about 10 stories above the, uh, the river where the bridge collapsed. And she, her condo happened to have this phenomenal view of, of the bridge. And um, we, we went up there. We, we, one of our photographers kind of was down under below her deck one day and she, right after the bridge collapsed and kind of waved to her and said, can I talk to you? And went and talked to her. And she ended up letting us use her condo and affix cameras to her uh, porch. And um, it was great that the next day, the New York Times came and wanted to do the same thing. And um, we said, you know, fine, we don't own it, she does. But um, we, we gave her some money uh, for all the, you know, all the trouble that we caused going in and out of her unit. And, uh, and we urged the New York Times to do the same, which they did. So um, it's funny, they kind of, so they'll kind of follow you around a little bit on these stories sometimes, but, um, uh, you know, in, with this one, I think, uh, 
you know, they were, they have some people who are pretty well versed in some of these policing issues and, and have seen for, you know, covered Ferguson and, and, and been there before. So, you know, there's, that's, they provide good competition. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that then that you guys were more or less taking the lead on it. Um, that makes me feel good about local journalism, at least. <laughs> no, so. as a community member, not necessarily as an employee of the Star Tribune, how have you seen Minneapolis change in the wake of this all? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, the first part of it, I just got to, I've got to say it, as a community member, as somebody who loves Minneapolis, loves St. Paul, that yeah, was hard. It was hard to see, you know, uh, the cities burn. It was hard to see a community member lose his life in that way. On, you know, and it was hard to see the pain that that caused and continues to cause. Um, it um, really is, uh, you know, I, I, I thought Minneapolis and St. Paul were sort of um, on a real high before George Floyd's death, before the pandemic, economically, you know, basically a full employment economy. Now, that said, we've always had some of the nation's worst disparities in education and in income. So, you know, people of, of color in, in Minneapolis and St. Paul haven't necessarily lived the same experience that the rest of us have. So, and that I'm well aware of, and we've written a lot about, and we'll continue to, and tried to try to be as solutions focused as we can be. But, um, you know, to some extent, I felt like watching what was happening in the community was some of the anger about those disparities was coming to the surface, and George Floyd's death was um, brought that brought that out, and some of and a lot of that anger is very very legitimate. Uh, and it reflects something that that we've got to figure out. So, um, you know, it's never, it's not, I would get text messages from friends in other states, Madison friends, actually, UW buddies who would say, you know, what's going on? And uh, it's so hard to watch CNN and see your cities burning. And, uh, you know, and it was, um, you know, we were working about, we were working a lot. And uh, I remember one night in particular, I think it was the third precinct night going to bed and having a fan on in the window and I could smell burning rubber and I could smell smoke because I don't live that far from where some of the, um, some of the damage was occurring in St. Paul. And, um, and now, you know, to see boarded up, to see boarded up businesses still and see still civil disturbance that leads to violence, that's, that's difficult to see. Some of the protests that were peaceful, uh, some of the tributes to um, and, and the memorializing of the site are inspirational as well. So um, there's that. But it's um, been a painful, painful number of months, especially on top of uh, the pandemic. Absolutely. I'd be interested to hear um, your thoughts on seeing Madison. I mean, we uh, State Street and all of downtown is still boarded up. Um, yeah, it'd, it'd be really interesting to hear your take on that. Yeah, I mean, I'd, seeing Madison like that, I've seen photos. I haven't been there since since uh, in, you know recently, but I've seen photos, and uh, it's uh, it's sad to see that um, because I you know I uh, it's one of my favorite cities in the country, and uh, I know there are a lot of great people there trying to do the right thing. So it's um, that's that's sad too. Definitely. Looking back now at the summer, 
Is there any way or is there anything that you would change about the coverage that happened or the way that things just kind of played out with the newspaper? You know, I, 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 I'll comment on opinion and what we could have done. We really worked hard to try to um, make sure that people knew we wanted to hear them. We wanted to get their voices. We wanted them to write to us either in full length commentaries or in letters to the editor. But I think we could have done even better with that. And it's hard and because you're publishing every day to, um, to do that outreach work that you need to do sometimes to literally get on the phone and call people and say, Hey, um, you know, uh, saw you quoted somewhere would, you know, seemed really interesting. Would you want to write for us? Would you want to, you know, would you want to give us a piece on that? Or, um, you know, certain number of people in the community we knew we had not heard from who we thought we would have. Uh, and so some of them we were able to contact and say, hey, where are you? Let's, you know, let's hear your take on things. But I think if I could do it over again, um, I probably would have drawn in, I would have probably asked for some extra help and, uh, and really been even more aggressive with that, both in terms of the outreach and maybe publishing even more content. Because uh, we published a lot, but, you know, you can only do so much given the number of people you have. And, um, but, you know, I think could have, could have maybe even added some more people and gotten even more uh, aggressive in terms of uh, expanding that content. Uh, in terms of my colleagues in news, you know, I, I don't, I, I think, you know, they really did a, a phenomenal job. And, um, you know, the, I think the thing for them now is there's some pretrial hearings just uh, actually Friday of this week that are going to be important. And, and that'll kind of kick off the new phase in, uh, in the George Floyd case, which will be seeing these officers cases wind through the uh, legal system. And I think that'll be a real challenge uh, and, and for them and, uh, um, you know, to do that thoroughly and do it well and, and do it, um, you know, uh, uh, knowing that there'll be other, again, there'll be national competition on that, I imagine. So um, that'll be important for them to, to try to be out ahead. Absolutely. Um, just one more question on uh, the summer of protests before I we move on to maybe some of the more political stuff. But what does Minneapolis look like today? Are there still protests going on? Um, are there still demonstrations? Yeah, you know, they tend to be, there have been some, they tend to be smaller. Um, as you may have seen after Kenosha, uh, there, there was a, a protest that unfortunately did lead to some, some vandalism and some crime in downtown Minneapolis. Uh, that, that, you know, for some businesses to more business, some more businesses to, to uh, board up. Um, you know, the, the things have been before that have been fairly quiet. And, and, and a, you know, again, I, I want to emphasize there have been a lot of peaceful protests too. Um, they don't get the same attention nationally for sure. Um, I think that we've done a pretty good job as a newspaper of, of showing those as well. Uh, but, you know, we've, uh, as we saw in Kenosha, sometimes these these events will bring people from from out of state too, and from other parts of the state. This isn't all a Minneapolis-St. Paul uh, issue, and um, some protest some protester some protests were taken advantage of by some people who um, used the cover of of those to come in and do some do some damage. So there's been some of that as well. Uh, you know, I think people are still 
they're still hurting. They're still trying to figure out where to go from here. Uh, you know, they're watching the legal cases pretty closely and trying to, you know, they want to know where that, where that's going to go. And meanwhile, we've had the debate about and continue to have the debate about policing and, and whether to, you know, at what level to fund a police force. And, uh, there were council members, as you probably read, city council members in Minneapolis who proposed a charter amendment to allow people to vote on whether or not to um, maintain the, uh, the, the Minneapolis charter requirement that there's a police force of a size that is a, a ratio based on a ratio of citizens. That process kind of bogged down because the charter commission didn't put it on the ballot. So now the council is left to try to figure out where to go with police reform from here and funding from here. And meanwhile, you know, there's some, there's crime activity. So um, there are people who are saying, you gotta, you gotta enhance public safety. So it's uh, that's, that's a debate that's very live and continuing. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure we'll be hearing about it in the news for months to come, but kind of turning now from this summer and looking towards November I keep seeing movement, especially on behalf of the Republicans or the, you know, like the National Republican Party making targeted ads and targeting Minnesota and certain parts of Minnesota to take advantage of the purpling of the state, as it were. Is that is that something that's happening? Is that what you're seeing on the ground there? Well, this has been, in my opinion, a, a pretty purple state for a while now, and, and you could see that because, you know, Se uh, Secretary Clinton was uh, only barely beat Donald Trump uh, in, the, in, in the 2016 election. The, um, you know, rural Minnesota and um, parts of the suburbs are very different than, than the two cities. And um, I don't know whether Trump can, can flip the state uh, this time, uh, but probably the best issue he's got working for him is law and order. I know that in talking with people, friends, neighbors, uh, people in business, you know, they're, they're pretty concerned about the public safety aspects and some of the violence that occurred and what it means for, uh, what it means for business, what it means for commerce, what it means for, you know, living here. And, um, so I think that, um, that that's the best issue the president has working for him because the pandemic isn't a very good story for him. And maybe even is a worse story with the revelations that are coming out today from uh, Bob Woodward's upcoming book. So the, um, I think we'll hear more of it. I think we'll see Trump here and I, uh, uh, more. Uh, we did last time, and as you know, Secretary Clinton didn't visit uh, Wisconsin. Uh, during the um, uh, campaign, the general election campaign, I believe she was in Wisconsin during the primary, but, but didn't come back during the general election campaign, which is something her uh, campaign was criticized for. And one thing that I try to remind people when, when Trump or Pence or um, anybody from the camp, Trump campaign comes to Minneapolis-St. Paul, they're getting sort of a two for one there because the Star Tribune, the Pioneer Press, the TV stations here, we're the media uh, we're the media exposure that people have in Western Wisconsin, up and down the border. And those counties are, are kind of fickle. They're kind of, they're pretty purple. 
They went for Obama twice uh, by pretty big margins, and then they flipped to Trump by a big margin. So those are counties, those rural Wisconsin counties are really important. And so I think when, I think the Trump campaign knows that. I actually think that there's evidence now that the Biden campaign gets that too. They understand that too. And um, so I expect to see both campaigns pretty active in both Wisconsin and Minnesota. And I, you know, I think the races are going to be pretty tight in both those states. So we shall see. But that, yeah, we're turning our our attention right now is on the election, on endorsements, which we still do at the Star Tribune, and um, but still on the pandemic and still on issues of policing and 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 social justice. So those are you know that's a lot to have have to focus on at one time for a small team but it's important yeah it is definitely a big task as we're as we're kind of wrapping up in just a couple more questions how are you seeing the politicization of covid-19 play out in minnesota especially in reference to uh the election uh, another excellent question uh the pandemic's been politicized, so masks are politicized. Uh, open whether businesses are open or not is politicized. Uh, how many they can let in uh, is politicized. Everything is in this environment, and um, you know, I think as I talk to Republican friends, there's uh, 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 some who are very concerned, and they're very concerned on a personal level about the virus, but they also have some hesitation about. Uh, some of the public policy decisions that have been made and whether they were uh, in the best interest of the state. Well, but, but while I talk to uh, people on the other side who think that, you know, who, who think that we'd be in such a much better place if, uh, if uh, we didn't have leaders in Washington and also Republican leaders in the state of Minnesota who seem to want to completely dismiss or, or largely dismiss, dismiss the risks that this virus poses. And, you know, you saw the uh, the number of people from Minnesota who participated in Sturgis and then brought the virus back to the state. Um, you know, you, you, you see the, the debate over schools and whether or not they could open K through 12, as well as at the university and college level. And um, it's, uh, you know, I think there's a fatigue too, for sure. We're not a necessarily incredibly patient culture in, <laughs> in, in the country. So, uh, you know, it's been a long haul and uh, people, uh, people are tired of it. And now heading into a winter, which winters in Minnesota and Wisconsin uh, are, are special treats and <laughs> where we are uh, uh, closer to each other than we maybe wanna be, especially when there's a pandemic going on. So, I, you know, it, um, it's a big issue. And I mentioned Woodward's book a few minutes ago and the revelations that are coming out today about that and about Trump downplaying the uh, severity of the virus and the risks that opposed uh, back in uh, early February is, uh, that's gonna ramp up the political uh, stakes on, on the pandemic even more, I think, in the days ahead. So we also have the vaccine. Are you gonna believe in the vaccine or not? We have a pretty healthy, um, or maybe unhealthy uh, population of people who don't believe in vaccinations for of any type in this state. So are they going to take uh, a COVID vaccine uh, or who is and at what point uh, will they feel like it's safe to do that? So, you know, a lot left to play out uh, and um, be a very interesting couple of months here. 
Absolutely. Before we wrap up, is there anything you want to mention about Minneapolis, Minneapolis politics, um, you know, before we wrap up? Um, yeah, I think I, I have some confidence, uh, some optimism that um, the, the, all that pain I've been talking about today, that that's actually going to lead to some, some meaningful uh, progress on social justice issues, on race relations in Minnesota, Minneapolis, and St. Paul, and um, that we're going we're gonna to get through this and understand each other better. That's my hope. And I think there are a lot of smart, well-meaning people here who want that to be the outcome. And uh, so I'm going to be an optimist and say that that's where this is headed. That is a great note of optimism to leave off of. Thank you so much for joining us today, Scott. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate you having me on. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely for now.